Today, we kick off a brand new series. We're gonna be studying the life of Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, not earthly father of Jesus Joseph, but Old Testament Joseph, technicolor coat Joseph, if you know him in that way. And what we see in the life of Joseph, technically his story, it is a longer story, all the way from chapter 37 in Genesis to chapter 50. We are not gonna do all that today, don't worry. We are gonna go through the first part of it. But what we see about the life of Joseph, it is when you look at his family, when you look at the situation, when you look at his story, it is truly the ingredients that equal a recipe for disaster. And we're gonna see a lot of that today, especially. We're gonna read out of chapter 37 specifically. And if you, as we follow through, you're gonna see this family is messed up. And not just messed up, they have been messed up for a long time. A lot of dysfunction, a lot of ingredients in this family that makes for a recipe for disaster. And I'm just gonna give you a heads up. If you are hoping to come to church today and walk out super encouraged and fulfilled and like, wow, amazing stories of, of heroes of the faith, you're gonna be sorely disappointed this morning. <laughs> this morning, as we finish chapter 37, it's like, that's it? Like, it does not end very happy. It does not end all nice and neat with a bow tied together. It ends with a bigger mess than it began. We're gonna see a big hot mess in this family and you're gonna see it just spiral out of control, a recipe for disaster. But if you'll stick with me for the next about six weeks as we study the life of Joseph, the story of Joseph, as I said, Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50, Yes, there's a lot of disaster and disappointment. There's betrayals, there's lies, there's hardships, there's sufferings. There's all kinds of problems through the life of Joseph. But through all of it, I'll give you the spoiler. Chapter 50, at the end of Joseph's story, Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 20. Here's what Joseph says as he reflects on his life of disaster. He says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Now, if you don't know the story, I understand you don't understand that context. Don't worry, we'll get there. But Joseph, in his reflection of his life of disaster and one difficulty and hardship and problem after another, he reflects back and he says, all those problems, all those disasters that people meant for evil God was still working. God was still moving. And he ended it with something good. I mentioned earlier, if you're here at the beginning of services, we were praying for the conflict overseas. We all experience brokenness. And you're gonna see a lot of brokenness in the story of Joseph and his family. But with God, even though it's gonna start super messy and super dysfunctional and a whole lot of brokenness, whole lot of disaster. With God, a broken beginning can become a beautiful ending. That broken beginning where you see your life and your situation, you're like, it just cannot ever get better. There's no way this is going to work out. I don't see how anything good could possibly come from this. That kind of brokenness with God, only with God, can something beautiful come from it. So let me just encourage you, whatever brokenness you've walked in with today, whatever heavy heart you're carrying, whatever burdens are weighing you down today, let me encourage you. You might not walk out and that burden is lifted and everything's peachy today, but if you'll allow God to continue to write your story, I promise he's in control. He is working and something beautiful will come from it. 
Let me pray and we'll dive into the hot mess of Joseph. God, thanks so much for uh, that promise that we get, that you are working in us and around us and for us. God, even in the midst of our brokenness, you're still moving, you are still in control, you are still sovereign and over it all. So God, whether it's our brokenness we're wrestling with, whether it's the brokenness of our world that is weighing us down, may we not just see the brokenness, but may we see your hand in working through it to create something beautiful out of something that's so destructive. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so follow along with me. We're gonna read a good chunk of his story here in chapter 37 out of Genesis. We're gonna read through it pretty quickly because I want you to see the whole beginning of Joseph's story and the whole dysfunction of his family. As we go through his story, just try to pick up on, oh, that's a recipe for disaster. Oh, that shouldn't be the case. Oh, I can't believe that just happened. Like look for all of those pieces because again, it starts out messy, but it builds and spirals out of control. It escalates. So see if you can identify all those parts of the stories, and then we're gonna make some observations and see what we can learn from it. So if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 37, um, that's where we're gonna be today. If you don't have a Bible, out where you got your coffee and your t-shirts, there's a bunch of Bibles, make sure you have a Bible. Best gift I could ever give you is making sure you got God's word in your hands. Here it is, Genesis 37, we're gonna start in verse two. This is the account of Jacob and his family. Jacob is the father of Joseph. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. So real quick, we get a little bit of the dysfunction right out of the gate. You've got Jacob, and I'm just, like, there's a lot about Jacob as the dad that I cannot in good conscience, like, say out loud on stage. Like there's some messy, messy, messy history to Jacob and all of the multiple wives and, and how the, ki it's just a mess. If you wanna read like a legit soap opera in the Bible, read the story of Jacob. It is a mess. And we get a little bit of that here. You've got, okay, this wife and this wife and these half brothers. And then you got Joseph is the youngest. And isn't it just the, I won't ask if you, anyone in here is the youngest sibling, but you identify with this, don't you? that you report to your father some of the bad things everybody else was doing. Already, you can see a little bit of this dysfunction in the family. Here's what happens next. Verse three, let's add to that dysfunction. Verse three, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. Can we just acknowledge that favoritism in family is probably not a good idea? We all know parents, you probably have a favorite, but you don't tell the other kids who your favorite is, ever. You never do that. Jacob's mistake, he made it obvious that he has a favorite. Made a coat just for Joseph, and obviously the rest of the brothers hated him for it, which is what we're gonna see next, verse four. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. And they couldn't say a kind word to him. So are you picking up this recipe for disaster? You already have a father that has a very messy and broken history, and the family is already very broken and dysfunctional. Then you have a younger son, Joseph, the youngest, who's already a tattletale and all these other things that the other brothers are doing. And that brother that's telling all these other things that the other brothers are doing, this father now loves him more than the rest of them and makes it obvious, gives him this wonderful coat. Now the other brothers hate him for it. Can't even say something kind to him. 
Now Joseph is gonna add just a little bit more dysfunction to the family. Verse five, look what Joseph does. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Here's the dream. Listen, and just imagine like the youngest brother saying this to all of his brothers that already hate him. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Then suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed down low before mine. Isn't that awesome? You were bowing down to me. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? This word hates in here a lot, if you haven't noticed. And they hated him all the more because of his dreams. But notice this last part. And the way he talked about them. Recipe for disaster, yes or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. From pride, the pride of Joseph, to the, the favoritism of Jacob, the father, to the jealousy and envy and hatred and bitterness of the brothers, this is not going to end well. So what happens, Joseph actually has a second dream that's very similar to the first dream. He didn't learn from the first part, so he decides to tell the whole family this time about his dream. Y'all are gonna bow down to me. Once again, they hated him all the more. If you keep reading the story, you'll see that the brothers were off tending to the flocks. And the father, Jacob, sends Joseph to go check on them. Doesn't seem like a good idea at this point. Tensions are high. Hatred is at an all-time high. And as the brothers start to see Joseph walking towards them, they come up with a plan. We're gonna pick up in verse 18. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father that a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Super healthy relationships in that point. Right, who would have thought that this, this coat would turn into now a murder plot? But these brothers, they, they recognize that, no, Joseph is truly one of us. He is our brother. So even though they're planning to kill him, there's a little bit of a rift between the brothers on what they should actually do to him. Should we actually murder him? Should we just leave him for dead? What should we do? So they do, they capture him, they throw him in the pit. And this discussion happens between the brothers of what they really should do with him. And then one of the brothers, Judah, comes up with a brilliant idea. Pick it up at verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? I guess that's a good question to ask if you're in the midst of committing murder. He goes on and explains his thinking. We'd have to cover up the crime. In other words, that's way too much work. Why would we kill him and then have to clean up this mess? Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Can we just ponder that sentence for a second? We were gonna kill him, then they were gonna just leave him for dead. So it was like, it wasn't our fault, he fell in the pit. And then they're like, no, 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 let's not kill him, it's too messy, it's too much of a problem. Like, let's not mess with that, let's sell him. Cause he really is our brother. And I mean, he's one of us. So let's not do anything that bad. Let's just sell him into slavery. Makes a lot of sense. His brothers thought so. It says here, and his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites who were Midianite traders came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern, out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Much better than killing him. So the brothers say. 
dysfunction that escalates and spirals out of control. Keep reading the story. The brothers make up this big cover-up story. They take the robe and they dip it in goat's blood. They tear it to pieces. They show up and says, Daddy, I don't know what happened, but we found this on the side of the road. And he assumes, understandably, that a wild animal has taken his youngest son. And here's where the story ends for us today. Verse 34. Then Jacob, that's the father, Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say, and then he would weep. Happy Sunday morning. <laughs> That's where that part of the story ends. It begins as a hot mess and those ingredients of dysfunction and sin lead to an absolute destruction of the family. So what I want us to do is I wanna make just a couple observations and then I think there is some things we can learn here, but the observations we're gonna make are really, really important. Here's the tendency we could have after reading a crazy dysfunctional story like this. It would be very easy for us to sit here at 9.30 on a Sunday morning to say, oh my goodness, can you believe they did that? What a terrible family. Didn't they see what this was gonna do? Couldn't they tell where this was gonna go? How could Jacob do that to his other sons? How could the brothers be so heartless? How could Joseph be so naive to his pride? It'd be so easy for us to read the story of the dysfunction and destruction of this family and just make it about them and say, well, that would never happen to my family. I would never, si I would never kill one of our siblings. We would never, I would never have a favorite. I would never, like we say that phrase a lot. I would never happen to us. It would never happen to me. We would never, I mean, we have our disagreements and sure, no family's perfect. We have our dysfunctions, but we would never end up like this. I really do hope that's true. Cause I mean, this is like on the extreme of dysfunction, but what led to that extreme really wasn't that extreme. Here's what I mean by that. Let me point out two observations that they struggled with that I think we could say, hey, you know what? That could be in our family as well. Here's the first one that we have to reckon, recognize. No one is immune. No one is immune. We might think that we and our families are immune from this kind of destruction and dysfunction, but no one is immune. And I say that because of who Jacob was. I mean, Jacob truly read through Hebrews 11, kind of known as the hall of faith, Jacob is listed there towards the top, that Jacob is one of the heroes of our faith, especially in the Old Testament, of how much he loved God and how great he was in God's sight. And this is how his family was. No one is immune. Old Testament and New Testament, often God would refer to himself as, quote, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like God attaches his identity to these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like this Jacob, yes, this Jacob. Jacob, you'll also, if you read back a little bit of his story, God actually changes Jacob's name to Israel. Yes, what we now know as the nation of Israel, the nation of Jacob, that's the same guy. And so if he, and his family can have that kind of dysfunction and that recipe for disaster. If he and his family are not immune, neither are we. Neither are we. And the ingredients that led to such a disaster 
on paper don't sound that, that bad. Joseph just shared some of his dreams. The brothers had typical sibling rivalry. The father favored one because of the relationship he had with his mother. Lot of small ingredients that led to a major, major dysfunction. Here's the second observation that we see. Expect the dysfunction to escalate. Do you notice that in your family? Like, I'm not willing to make this a holistic statement. I mean, every scenario probably is different. But do you notice that if things aren't checked, if things aren't worked on, if things aren't addressed, it usually just doesn't get better, right? I mean, if you parents like let your kids and they just start fighting and you look back, you're like, oh, they'll work it out. No, they don't until someone gets hurt and then you have to intervene. No, the dysfunction escalates. And that's what we see happen here. The dysfunction escalated over time as the ingredients for that destruction and dysfunction continue to get added. More and more favoritism, more and more pride, more and more jealousy and anger and bitterness and hatred. And that dysfunction continued to grow and spiral and escalate. And here's the scary part about the reality of escalation. No one says, oh yeah, I totally saw this coming. No, we say the opposite. I never expected this. I never thought we would get to this point, right? When you meet somebody and if you've ever talked with somebody when they're at their lowest, they're not like, oh yeah, I totally saw this. Yeah, I expected this 100%. No, it's, I, don't, I don't know how I ended up here. I don't know how we got to this place. That's the reality of escalation. No couples get married, married planning on getting a divorce. Usually that conversation in some form or fashion is, we don't know where it went off the tracks. We didn't expect this to happen. Nobody goes into something expecting the worst. But over time, it will escalate. The dysfunction will escalate. Now, yes, as we read earlier out of chapter 50, God is working behind the scenes and God is sovereign and God is in control. But at the same time, I think there's still some lessons we can learn from their dysfunction and their destruction of a family. Go back to the ingredients that make either a great no-bake cookie or a recipe for disaster with my kids going headfirst down the stairs. If the result is not what you're wanting, if you look at your marriage, if you look at your home life, if you look at your work and environment and culture in the workplace, if you look at your neighborhood, if you look at our church, like you wanna look at an environment and some relationships, and if you don't like the result, if you don't like where you're at, change the ingredients. If you go through this recipe book and you're like, you know what, I, I, really, I really didn't like how it turned out. The problem is in the recipe and how we followed the instructions. So if you don't like where a relationship is at today, I'm telling you, it's not gonna get any better. The dysfunction is gonna continue to escalate. Change the ingredients. We just read through the ingredients, the recipe for disaster. I wanna flip over and show you some ingredients for something that would give you a very different result. So we're gonna flip way over to Ephesians chapter four. Follow me there, Ephesians chapter four. So what Jacob and his family were dealing with, that dysfunction, those ingredients and recipe for disaster, guess what? Was still present in the New Testament as Paul's writing to the early churches. And guess what? It is still very much present in our day today as well. If you don't like the results, if you don't like where your relationships are at, you've gotta be willing to change the ingredients. So. Paul's gonna be speaking to a lot of those, the recipe for disaster, and here's how you begin to change that. 
Look at his words here. Ephesians chapter four, verse 21. He writes, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust, lust and deception. So it's like, yes, there is some dysfunction, there is destruction, there is sin in our lives and in our relationships that is causing problems. Throw it all off. And look what he says in verse 23. I love this word. Instead, man, what a powerful word. Instead of living that way, instead of those ingredients, he says, instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So that sets up what Paul's about to do. He's gonna go through a list of stuff. And if you keep reading through, you see him start hitting on them. Stop telling lies. Don't sin by letting your anger control you. If you're a thief, quit stealing and actually do something good with your hands. Don't use foul or abusive language. No, be encouraging. So he starts going through this list of, these are the ingredients and the recipes for disaster. So instead, change the ingredients, change the recipe. If you don't like the result, change what you're doing. And then he begins to sum it up in verse 31. This is where it's gonna get really helpful. Verse 31, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. That last part just covers everything else he didn't mention in the list. <laughs> get rid of these. It's a recipe for disaster. We could go back and start to find those in the life of Joseph and Jacob and his brothers. Did we see bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, and all kinds of other evil behavior? Did we see those in the story of, jo of Joseph? Very much so. And it did not end well. So Paul says, you gotta get rid of those things. Here's that word again. Instead, verse 32. Instead, here's what we replace it with. Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And those three parts, be kind to each other, tenderhearted and forgiving one another. Could you imagine with me just for a quick second, the story of Jacob with Joseph and his brothers. What would have been different if there was kindness towards one another? If there was tenderheartedness towards one another, and there was forgiveness in that family. I think we can all agree it would have ended very differently. Probably not with Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. Again, if you don't like the result, if you don't like where your relationships are today, you don't like where your community is today, change the recipe, change it to this. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Let's talk about those three. Paul is very specific on those three elements or ingredients to replace with. Instead of all these other evil behaviors, replace them with these three, kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. There's a little bit more to those words. So let me dive in just for a couple minutes on each of those. Kindness, let me say it this way. Be kind with them in mind. That's the big piece of this, with them in mind. Oftentimes in our language, we use kindness and nice. Be kind or be nice is like the same thing, not the same whatsoever. Being nice is like the culturally accepted thing. It's, it's kind of subjective based on your culture. Well, I did a nice thing. I used nice words. 
It's not specific, it's very general. Kindness, the word kind, especially how it's used in scripture, is intended to be useful to the person that's receiving the kindness. In fact, if you were to look at the scriptures where God is called kind, where in God and his kindness or the kindness of God, what that actually means there, check this out, eternally useful. I love that. When God is described as kind, he's really being described as being eternally useful for all people. So in our examples on how we interact with one another with kindness, it's I'm being kind, but with you in mind, I'm being kind so that it's helpful for you. I'm being kind so that it's actually considered useful for you. Becky and I are very, very different. I mean, isn't that great how just God pulls spouses together and you agree on a lot, you're similar in a lot of ways, but in some ways you're very, very different. So for me, if I were to come home and it's been a long day or stressful day and I walk in the door, the way that Becky is kind to me is she drops what she's doing and she runs over to me and gives me the biggest hug and just gives me this big kiss on the cheek and says, Brian, I love you so much. I know you've worked so hard today. And she just like holds me. And I'm just like, oh, I needed that. Thank you so much. Like, that's kind. That's how she loves me because she knows how I need to be loved and what kindness is for me. Let's reverse the roles for a second. Let's say Becky comes home from work. Long, busy, stressful day. If I dropped everything and ran and embraced her, she'd be like, I need a minute. And I know that about her. It's not because she doesn't love me. not because she doesn't want me to be around. It's because for her, the most kind thing that I could do for her is to say, I see you walking in the door and I'm gonna make sure the kids don't see you. <laughs> and I'm gonna let you go all the way upstairs unnoticed and you're gonna lock the door and you're gonna take as much time to breathe and to be alone, to process and to decompress as you possibly need. And then she gives me the thumbs up and sneaks upstairs. <laughs> That's how I'm kind to her. Both are kind, but it's because it's specific to the other person. It's what they need. In fact, that's why we're doing that workshop. We've been talking about it the last several weeks, the communication workshop tonight with Kathleen Edelman. She talks all about this. In fact, she uses Ephesians 4.29 as her basis of if you really wanna use words that are helpful for others, you need to know what's helpful for others. So in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work environments, super, super helpful. I'd highly encourage you to be there tonight. Becky and I will be there. We're even having our kids sit in on this. We've been talking about the colors. It's gonna be a lot of fun. So we'd love to have you be there tonight. It's going to be helpful so that you can be kind with them in mind. Then Paul uses this word tenderhearted. Now, if you were with me a few weeks ago, I love some certain Greek words, and this is my all-time favorite. Every pastor has a favorite Greek word. If you, anybody here when we did gangusmas? Some of you, yeah, this one's better than gangusmas. So this word here, tenderhearted, it actually has a root word that's part of the Greek word, splagnizomai. Mm, I love that word. You stick with me long enough, you, I promise you, I work this word in every single time. Every time I, I see this in scripture, I'm gonna let you know about it because there's so much more to it, splagnizomai. And splagnizomai means from the bowels of compassion. Oh, it's such a great image for you in the morning, isn't it? And what it means is it's not just tenderhearted, I have pity and I feel bad for you. No, it means, oh, I, I hear you, I see you, and I hear your story, and I'm moved like it hurts in my gut. That's what he's talking about. 
It's not a, oh, that's too bad. Moving on. It's a, oh my goodness, I can't imagine that. Tell me more. Oh my goodness, I can't believe you went through that. So often we are quick to judge because we haven't heard their story. When we hear their story, we are moved with deep compassion. That's what Paul is saying is the right ingredient here. Be moved by deep compassion. Listen, hear their story and have that tender heart. Be moved by deep compassion. The last one he mentions here is forgiving one another, but he adds a little tagline, do you remember? Just as God through Christ has forgiven you. There's a direct comparison to how we are to forgive. Not just that you are to forgive, but a direct comparison on forgive, but make sure you forgive like God forgave you. How did God forgive us? He forgave us when we didn't deserve it. He forgave us even though we would continue to fail again and again and again. How did he forgive us? With joy, not obligation. So what do we do with that? We freely give forgiveness. We don't hold on to forgiveness. We don't wait till they say they're sorry. We don't wait until they deserve it. We don't wait till they've earned it back. We freely give forgiveness. Well, how many times do I have to do that? Peter asked Jesus that question. He basically said, you don't stop because his forgiveness never stops. We freely give forgiveness. Can you imagine, once again, how different the life of Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers would have been if instead of jealousy, bitterness, pride, favoritism, what if they had kindness, compassion, and forgiveness? Now, some of you here might say, no, my brokenness is way too much to change. Like, it is what it is. And yes, there are consequences with our actions. But remember what we said at the beginning, with God, those dysfunctional, those messy, those broken beginnings can become something beautiful in the end with God. Feel like your marriage is too far gone. Feel like you've not been able to parent your kids well or you've been gone too much. Just those work relationships just will never go back to the way they were. That might be true, not back to the way they were. But God is a God of restoration and reconciliation. And he can turn our brokenness and our mess into something absolutely beautiful. So just like we could imagine what Jacob's family could have looked like if they changed their recipe in their family, what could your family begin to look like if just those three things based on a foundation of Christ, on the foundation of Christ, kindness with them in mind, moved by deep compassion and forgiving others like Christ forgave you, how different could your family look? How different would your friendships look? How different would your relationship with your kids look? How different would your relationship with your spouse look? How different would you walk into and see your, your boss or your employees or your coworkers? How different would you treat people on social media? That counts. How different would our relationships be if we lived out Ephesians 4 with Jacob's story in mind? I wanna leave you with this because no brokenness is beyond God's ability to work. 
Psalm chapter 40, we're told this. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. And he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and he steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and will be amazed. And then they will put their trust in the Lord. May you put your trust in the Lord and allow your brokenness to move you closer to him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you are doing, for what you have done. And God, the brokenness that we feel or are experiencing, the the current realities of our families and our relationships, our community, our churches, the world around us. If we don't like the result, would you help us through your Holy Spirit to change the ingredients, change the recipe, instead of the bitterness and the hatred and the anger, what would happen in our lives and in our relationships and in our world if we replaced it with kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. We can't do those things without you. We cannot truly be kind and compassionate and forgiving without recognizing your kindness to us, your compassion towards us, and your forgiveness of us. So may we not just try to do better. May we live a certain way out of the overflow of what you've already done and shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.